0: And so I resigned because I could not agree to a conversation that was going to make me feel unsafe without there being some kind of rules in place to make that conversation happen. This is the Happen to Your Career Podcast with Scott Anthony Barlow. We help you stop doing work that doesn't fit you, figure out what does, and make it happen.
1: We help you define the work that's unapologetically you and then go get it. If you're ready to make a change, keep listening.
0: Here's Scott.
1: Here's Scott. Here's Scott. Okay. I think everyone knows the importance of communication, but how many of us are actually great at it? I would venture to say that having great conversations is both a science and an art, but learning to make conversation in ways that allow you to connect with anyone takes work and practice. But the dividends pay off huge when it comes to your career.
0: What I've asked them to do is kind of keep track of the conversations that they felt like really worked and what it was about those conversations. What's their hunch about what made that conversation work? And what were the ones that didn't work? And what is their hunch? And that becomes a really great inspiration source. That's Fred
1: Dust. Fred has done more than a few things in his career, as you'll hear about later in the episode. However, some notable points are working with IDEO. He was founder and trustee for IDEO.org, which was IDEO's nonprofit that designed solutions to global poverty. He lectures widely on various topics, including design methodology, future trends, social innovation. He's taught at California College of Arts, University of California, the Berkeley School of Environmental Design, and even lectured at Parsons New School. He also writes for publications like Fast Company, Metropolis, Rotman Magazine. He has a variety of books out, including his latest one called Making Conversation, as you might have guessed. But more than that, there have been some common threads throughout every step of Fred's career. Here's Fred describing where his career began.
0: I never believed I'd have a career at all. Like I was, I was, it's like, it never even occurred to me that a career and that that a career was possible for me. I went to school, really wanted to be an actor, believe it or not. Like, and everyone in my school went on to like be cast in like, you know, every single soap opera and movie and whatever, like, and I very quickly learned that's not, wasn't going to happen. And so I was a very disappointed 17 year old, like, sure I wasn't going to have anything. And, um, went to school, changed directions about my schooling like 18 different times. Like I was studying revol- revolutionary politics, South African politics. I studied, I decided finally I wanted to do art and art history, dropped out of school multiple times, went to different schools. Like it's like, honestly, it looked like a pretty much like a train wreck, right? Getting ready to happen. I found a working, cobbling together a career, working with artists who were focused on diversity, inclusion and race and in the nineties and was able to build something that I can't even tell you, Scott. Like I think I made maybe, $8,000 a year. And then I got paid like with artwork, which turns out, by the way, to have been great in the long run. It just lay like, at, at the time. And then was about to go back to school for grad school at for art. And then was like, maybe I should do something more practical, like architecture did went into architecture, hated the practice. And so then I just wrote IDEO. And was like, hey, do you want to hire an architect? And David Kelly was like, sure, come work with us. And so that was like, that's what kind of got me to like the 20 years of, of IDEO that I, that I did. But there was also a lot of transitions in that as well. So,
1: so I, hold up, back up for just a second. What even prompted you to write you know, IDEO in the
0: first place? I, like many, saw the Nightline video. And like all my other fellow students were trying to, so I had to work my way through colleges, all, bo- all both college, I actually, at Berkeley, I was a, designer for Old Navy. You remember Old Navy, Old Navy's, you know, like that. So everybody else was like doing really fancy stuff for like Rem Coolhouse and Famous Architects. And yeah. I was just doing retail stores for Old Navy. But it turns out that when I graduated, that was like the thing people needed people to do retailing like desperately so my piece advisor hired me even before I graduated from school so I never even graduated out of school to work on his retail and then I kind of from the beginning was like yeah I don't think architecture is where it's at kind of like that the, the culture is not that nice nobody listens to their clients like basically like they're all they're all kind of like trying to do their own work and I was like I bet this place idea would be pretty cool and just just to give you a sense my boyfriend at the time was a graphic designer. His dream job was to work at IDEO. And he was like, don't even dare. You wouldn't even, <laughs> they'll, they'll never hire you. Like they, they, they're like, they're so rigorous. Like I know people have been hired for like, haven't been hired for years. And I wrote, they, someone called me, they are like, can you come in tomorrow? And I, I had the job in two days. It's actually, it's why I think our, my, I broke my first boyfriend and I broke up. He was like, cause he applied for like years I never got in and then like, they just were like, sure. Come on in, we need you, so. totally. You know, what's so hard to realize about transitions, and I think it's important to recognize is that part of it's like, just good timing, you know, and it's like, I will say that like, I'm abnormally lucky. And people often say that people who are abnormally lucky, often it's because they face the world with a kind of stance of like, why not? What do I have to lose? And I'm sort of stupidly brave about things. But when you're going through these transitions, so much is just like, the right time, the right place, you hit the right thing. So I'm sure you've talked to quite a few people who've said things that were sort of similar to that.
1: I have, is the short answer. However, this is a fascinating topic to me. Almost, in some ways, reverse engineering, what creates that luck, you called it luck. And I do think that there is a luck element to it, as near as I can tell, in my humble opinion, and just getting being really fortunate to have lots of conversations with people about their paths and what piece different opportunities together. But I'm also curious, I heard you say, you know, I'm I'm sort of stupidly brave in some ways or have been stupidly brave. What do you think led up to that whole stupidly brave or just, you know, going for it anyways, there's probably something there. I'm guessing.
0: Yeah, I have brave tattooed over my heart. It doesn't say stupidly brave. because <laughs> 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 And what I actually often call it, like for so many people, by the way, don't self identify as brave, right? It's not a common quality. And if you ask people about courage, they won't necessarily say that they're courage. So yeah. I, I sort of say like, it's just kind of the willingness to put yourself out there a little bit like and, and that it, So it's kind of like an everyday kind of bravery and But what I would sort of say is that there's a theory behind luck, which is that people who believe that they're lucky have psychologically are tuned to spot opportunities in a a faster way and be willing to kind of reach it. So I I don't say luck is like, is magic. I do believe that there's actually, there's probably a psychology that that, that has made me feel lucky. And so one thing I can say to your listeners is like, start by pretending like you're lucky. That helps you. I did that. I came out by one day sort of saying to myself, I'm going to start by pretending I'm gay just to, for a day to sort of see if that makes me feel like I'm, I'm better. And it yeah. did. If some of your listeners don't feel like they're lucky, just try it on for a day. Pretend like you, you see everything as kind of like a lucky thing and see how that plays out. And I love that concept. Sorry, for me, really quickly, like, just to answer your question. I yeah, did, please. You know, my mom had a serious stroke when I was 24. And her father had a serious stroke when he was 30 and he died. And so I've been pretty much sure that I was on a time limit. So at 24 is when I was like, okay, I'm going back to grad school. You know, it's like, I can't just kind of like play around anymore. That time limit has made me be like move a little faster and a little more aggressively. It's also made me be like, I want to meet everyone I can meet on the wor- in the world. I want to talk to everyone and know what everybody is thinking, which has a lot to do with the book, why making conversation became a critical piece of what I do. But I think that's it. You know, I mean, here's the thing, Scott, we all have a time limit. So mine just happened to be more apparent, but... It's it's another reason why I would say that having really thinking if you're in transition to like, don't slow yourself down because, you know, time, time is of the essence. You you don't, you don't have forever. So that helped me quite a bit and, and probably spurred me on to be a little bit more ambitious than I would be otherwise.
1: That's really interesting. It also makes me think about I was a weird little kid. We'll just get that out there for, <laughs> <laughs> at first. So I remember when I was seven or eight years old, I remember, you know, like sobbing for all intents and purposes. And being like, I only have so much time. It's like, not something that a little kid often is thinking about in many different ways. So what's really weird for me is to see how much that type of outlook has actually helped in many different yeah. ways for the reasons that you just described. Like it it make being aware of that time limit or being aware of that expiration, as you called it, is very motivating
0: in many different ways. I think that's right. And it's like, yeah. and I'll be honest, like, Many of the key transitions in my life have been triggered by, watch, by losing somebody or losing something and realizing uh. I had to kind of think about moving forward. As a little child, I too was like, I had a weird thing. I was afraid of the night sky. I couldn't stand looking at stars. And the main reason was like, I just couldn't handle the notion that I would never live long enough to, be able to count every star that existed. It just like, it, so it reminded me of my mortality yeah. And my father was also an astronomer. And so I think I had like an aversion because I didn't have a great relationship with my father. But I now love the night sky. And I'll, I'll tell you why I think you should be contemplating the night sky, especially right now at some point. But yes, I was a weird kid too. <laughs> <laughs> well,
1: okay, so keeping going on that frame, my son, who is turning 10 next week, also goes through those same things he has for the last couple of years, less so on the night sky, but more so on the expert, this idea of expiration, like...
0: It's a real thing. I mean, and by the way, Scott, I just want to kind of call out something that you're doing that's really interesting. One of the principles that I have, or one of the things I've been doing a lot during the pandemic, is basically yeah. asking people about who they were at 12. And I do that because it's like, let's say I'm dealing with something where we're dealing with it's a white woman CEO who's like tall, gorgeous, beautiful, and there's like a black woman head of HR who has to deal with diversity inclusion, and we're trying to get them into dialogue together. By asking them who they were at 12, you often unpack things that you wouldn't get otherwise. So suddenly the white woman CEO who's tall, blonde, and beautiful, she reveals that she was tall at 12 and was made fun of viciously for her entire, like whatever. And suddenly the black woman diversity inclusion or the black woman CEO or whoever it is, is like, oh, well, when I was 12, I just discovered my hair and had so much pride and I felt strong and emboldened. And so When you get to see each other in that way, you can have a different kind of conversation often. So you did something very skillful with the way that you thought you managed your conversation there. Just wanted to call it out.
1: I really appreciate that. Thank you for the kind words. And also that's, you know, just to get a little bit behind the scenes too. I love that as an approach and technique, partially because I'm legitimately curious about your background. And it fascinates me how people kind of get to their present day. But also for, you know, knowing that other people are going to listen to this conversation too, it helps to, like you said, it helps to go down paths that we never would have talked about. And I find that you and I get to have a different conversation
0: that way. Well, and Scott, it's actually interesting because you also, if I told you why it was at 12, it's also a transition question because it's interesting. Yeah. Like at 12 through about 14, I was like closeted gay kid who my father wanted the perfect child I dated the cheerleader and I played soccer like that's 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 who I was and in order for me to kind of even explore the notion that I might be gay I had to construct what I call a formalized running away so I applied to a school in France and got a scholarship to go basically spent a year in France essentially out as a gay kid and then went back into the closet when I came back into the U.S. but so Ironically, even then there was transitioning happening. You know, let's so, so like let's remember it's, transitions aren't just work. Like sometimes they are, but sometimes they're about who am I as, am I, as an identity? Who, who am I as a person? And so there's a lot in there. I think
1: that's something that you know when we get to help people through big career transitions and life transitions. Arguably, behind the scenes, when we're working with people one on one we get to see those changes of identity. And, and we talked a lot about that in our internal team, but we don't really talk about that on the podcast a lot. I have realized as you and I are having this conversation that it's not, when you're going through these types of transitions, one of the things that isn't said or isn't apparent is you're shifting identity a lot of the time. Not all of the time, but a lot of the time. And in many ways, to be able to make a successful transition whatever individuals are defining this success, there's this observation that we've seen that you literally have to become a different person in some ways. And that's something that we just don't talk a lot about. So I'm curious as to your thoughts on that, because you've gone through a lot of
0: transition. Yeah, well, you know, and it's funny, because I don't know, the book, a lot of people who read it are like, it's 200 pages, but it's pretty sprawling, because it covers like a lot of different lives. It does. I sort of feel like I've been fortunate enough to kind of accumulate life after life after life after life. Like people are like, wait, I don't understand. Like, you were an actor, wait, I don't understand, like, you were actually a political scientist, like, I don't understand you were a this, and my <laughs> team, if you met them, they're way younger than me, and they're, like, my neuroscientist, just so you know, has also been a Sovietologist, a satellite specialist, he was a Disney Channel star, he was a model, he was a producer for the Kardashians, he's a data guy, and now he's my neuroscientist, and so it's, like, wow. I just love that, more is more. How lucky to, to have so much experience. And he keeps being like, I can't fit in anywhere. I'm like, who cares? Like, you're like a super genius because of, of what you do. And my strategist, you would love and she's kick ass. So I think you're right. And I'll give you I'll give you a really kind of specific example. Like we when my brother died, my, my brother died when I was, I don't know, I think in my early 40s in a car accident and we, we weren't very close. Um, and so that was a very hard thing. I, I went through a pretty hard part. And at that point, my husband lived in Los Angeles. We had a house in Los Angeles. All of my work was in Washington or New York that I had a mm-hmm. house in San Francisco. And I was driving to work the week after I, he died and I broke down and I was like, I have to go back to LA. Like I have to see my husband and who wasn't my husband at the time. And at that point I was like, you know what? this is stupid. It's like, why should I spend my life not living with the person that I love? And he was like, I don't want to go to San Francisco. And I was like, I can't move to LA for a full time. So we picked up and we moved to New York. And New York, I suddenly was like, I'd always identified as Californian. And suddenly I was like, hyper New Yorker. Like I was like, meeting everyone, like networking like crazy, going to every party, going to every gala. And that hadn't been me before that. Like, it's like, I was more like just hung out with my friends and stuff like that. And that shift in identity, which is now me, like also fueled a lot that happened in making conversations. So yeah, you can, and by the way, that's okay. Like an artist I used to work with said, this one said to me, try on every mask. And she meant it like, grow a beard, grow your hair long, cut your, cut your hair short, shave your head. You know, it's like, But but she also meant like anything you want like try on any mask you want. So I really, and that idea of masks, Scott, can help you in a transition sometimes to be like, let me just try this on, let me just see what it's like. And I can always take it off again if I want to, you know? So that's like, it's a nice safe way to experiment.
1: I love that idea. And actually that's been, it puts words to something that has been very useful for me personally over the last 20, 25 years or so is that idea of try on every mask. I've been doing that I didn't necessarily have a way to articulate it at the time I was doing it but that's really what was happening and I found that to be a very useful way to think about transition and experimenting with what could be right for you and it also, you know, brings up a whole different idea of well, I guess a whole different line of questions that jump into my head for your story. And it makes me curious about like, what were some of the other masks that you tried on along the way and what ultimately led up to you leaving IDEO? Because you spent yeah. quite a period of time with.
0: Yeah, I came in as a designer. I tried on the mask of designer. I was great. It. And then I became a project manager and I tried that on. It was great. Then I tried on business development. That was great. That was really fun for a while. And then I basically started building businesses. So I was like, okay, I could be like, sort of like, we CEOs, like, as I started these new businesses. So we built the space design practice, and that was great. But I was just on a call with somebody who used to work for me, who now is like, like senior most executive at Google. Like, she's like doing like amazing stuff there and um, different masks. She's like, yeah. she's wearing it really well. And then I was like, well, we have all this stuff that's like, our nonprofit work and our philanthropic work and our government work. And it was like, let's bring that together and build a business, which meant that I suddenly was leaving behind what I knew, which was architecture and space design and service design. And something was like, yeah, I can design government. Why not? You know, it's like, so we built this, what ended up being one of the largest practices at IDEO. It had all the organizational change. It had all of the work that we did with the Obama administration. It had, I I was on the phone this morning with the former Greek prime minister. I used to work with him on his work on during the, the Greek crisis. And I had to say like, I can do this. By the way, there's some masks that I wore and some I didn't. So I was in Washington. I was all over the white house. I would have dinner in the um, lunch in the canteen downstairs below the white house. I was in the Situation room, but I was like, yeah, but I'm not, I'm always going to wear my jeans. Like, it's like, I'll never wear a suit. I tried one day to wear a suit and I was like, I can't do it. And so basically I was like, Hey, I'm going to show up in jeans and clogs or whatever I feel like wearing. And you're going to be okay with it. And they've been fine. Like the white house was like, you do you, you know, it's like, Elizabeth Warren, who was like, was a client of mine, was like, "Yep, you're you're all good. Like, w- wear your jeans." Even now, that's the other piece of it, Scott, is that try on masks. But if they don't feel comfortable, like if a suit makes you feel cold, which it actually, I would always feel cold wearing suits, like literally, like I was like, "It's too cold. I can't figure it out." And then don't don't wear one. Be you too. You know, what? like as you know, I'm like sitting here in running clothes because I haven't no had a chance to change. <laughs> but that's the way it's going to show up today. So I think. There, you should know the things that are you, but also that are kind of core to you, but also be willing to try on the other stuff that might be new or interesting.
1: I think it's really difficult to understand yourself if you don't try on those other things. Though, let's see right. how far we can push this mask analogy, I suppose, but it's standing up really well. The If you don't have that, if you don't have those experiences, then it's going to be really difficult to have something to stand on to say that oh yeah like everybody else is dressing in suits as they go to the white house
0: but like i'm going with jeans like i wore a suit the first couple of weeks and was just like yeah. oh, this is not working and you're not getting the best meets like i remember being in this thing with like the emmanuel i think it's zeke emmanuel who's doing the health work i can't remember i can remember it's like and it was in the, in the white house conference center and i was like in a suit and i was just like deeply uncomfortable and like they just weren't getting and then they, they, they did another meeting the next week and i was like yeah forget it i'm gonna wear jeans and then I got called in the White House when Biden was doing the, the gun violence work, right? So it was like we were doing the stuff after Sandy Hook and or Newtown. I was like, I'm not gonna wear, I'm gonna wear jeans. And it was great. It was way better. And so you have to kind of tune that. By the way, I wanna say something about masks. First of all, culturally speaking, masks have always allowed us to kind of try on different things. That's why Halloween is such a, a beloved thing, right? Is that we get to and be a different person for a different day. And that's why we all become, it's actually why, like, when you're single, you always get a date on Halloween because you get to be like the person you're not. Like It's like you pretty much always like get, find, find the perfect person. But what's interesting about that, so that's culturally speaking, masks also help us literally. I've seen people do it in conversations where they wear masks and have different kinds of conversations, but also masks, trying on a mask is a principle of the book, right? So if you remember in the book, it says name things, right? Or give us a visual metaphor for things by saying trying on a mask you're actually giving, you're clarifying exactly what it is you're doing. And that visual, I mean, obviously, since you're like, you're fixated on it a little bit, as am I now, like that visual really helps us because we're basically like, oh, it's a visual metaphor, but it's like so simple that it really clarifies. And I, I really encourage us to do that in conversation as well. And unfortunately, some people who are really good at using visuals, let's name one, the wall, you know, Trump's wall. Like that like he's that's a really good visual he he's really good at it, and that's one of the reasons why he he's able to kind of like so so essentialize things that it comes down to these kind of really weird kind of black and white issues. Then.
1: I think that this is something that this might actually, I'm surprised that we came around to hear so quickly. This might be actually my favorite concept in the book. Maybe partially because I love making up words or terms or naming things. is one of my favorite things to do. However, you know, I found this particularly helpful to get further in the dialogue that really is meaningful, which is one of the things that I know that you I'm gonna say almost stand for at this point, for lack of a better phrase. Here's an example. My team and I realized somewhere along the way that when it came to not finishing things, we were all feeling apprehensive about talking to each other because we were all a little bit embarrassed in some different ways that we hadn't finished the thing. And we hadn't, like we would left it to the last second and, you know, hadn't asked for help or hadn't done something else. And it caused us not to be able to talk or made it much more uncomfortable Uh, When we did, so we started realizing, like, this is a real issue on our team. Like, we we just, I mean, we can't do business like this. We all really like each other, and we all you know want to be here, but we're all having the same problem. So they're like, "Hey, what what can we take that we all know something about that creates this visual image in our mind that we can agree upon is how we're going to ask for help?" So we literally took like the bat signal. Here's the language we're all going to agree to. When I am feeling uncomfortable. And a slightly embarrassed, but I know that I need to ask for help and be courageous about it anyways. I'm going to say, hey, I, I, I need to raise the bat signal.
0: That's a genius example of it, right? It's naming something, it's a visual analogy. It's one that's culturally kind of well-known and has culturally been well-known for like historically. So you can say that across generations, right? Like you can say that to someone, you know, who the Bat Signal was like in a comic book that they read, like, you know, yeah. back in the 40s or whatever. But so what's interesting about that is that um, it's a great way of it makes it safe to kind of to have that conversation because you're like, okay, I, I'm admitting it. I love it when groups name things together. I think there's a really basic example I give in the book that I really that was fascinating for me was at some point, I took on a three year project at idea to figure out why there was the volatility in the business, because it was like, there's these curves up and down in the business. That's that's true of most consultancies. So I spent three years doing that. That's that's one mask I wore. Like it's like the fact that I was the one who was doing all the like everyone was like, you're the creative, but then I was like doing all the data and analytics and business analytics on this, or leading the team that was doing that. And I started that project by calling it business forensics. Like I was like, we were clearly dying, and we need to figure out what the forensics were that making things work. That conversation was very serious, quite dour, pretty much a downer, as you can imagine. As we started to get things getting, we were like, we can fix this. I was like, time to like not call it Business Forensics. Nobody's liking that. It's like a bad name. And so I thought we changed it to Business Fitness because that was something that people could really aspire to. And like, they could really kind of think about it. But in retrospect, and I only thought about this while I was writing the book, is that in retrospect, both names served their purpose. So when we said, call it Business Forensics, we were saying, we're going to die. Or like, we're dead. You know, it's like- copper. Take it serious, like really focused, understand what happened. It's like, you know, there's like architectural forensics, which is like when a building collapses, like what, why did it collapse? And then when we called it business fitness, it was fun. And it was something people could aspire to you and there were clear goals and everybody was like, we're getting business fit. And that was, and so it did both. It was like a really, really good thing. So it really, it mattered.
1: I'm having a lot of fun. We're going a lot of different places. I want to talk briefly about why you left IBO. There's some pieces I'm fascinated about that I think you did a phenomenal job with in the book that I wanna ask you
0: about. Why did you leave audio? Everyone's dream company. Like how how could you do that? I mean, I left audio for a couple different reasons and I think these will resonate for your listeners. Um, I left in part because the election happened, and all of my clients like who were big NGOs, Planned Parenthood, ARP, had to focus on basic human rights. Obviously, I wasn't working with the government anymore. I, the last project I did was, was with the Surgeon General, but he got fired. And IDEO, through the work that I had helped do with Business Fitness, had sold itself, which we needed to do. It had decided to focus only on major companies. So not focus on the kind of weird work that I liked. It became less free and risk-taking. And for me, at least, like people didn't, didn't like let me take the risks that they let me take all the way through the, the process. I, unfortunately, in the process of doing business fitness became sort of known for somebody who would go in and shut down offices. So, and by the way, like shutting an office, they say it, it makes you grow. It might, but it doesn't make you a better person, to be honest. Like it's like firing 40 people like maybe something that's like really a powerful thing, but it's, it doesn't make you... By the way, my heart goes out to everyone who's having to do that right now because people are having to do that left and right. And also my heart goes out to other people who've been fired. There's no good part of that process. And I have a friend who just had to do a major lay- layoff and I was like, you'll never feel good about yourself. Don't try. Don't try to make it an okay thing. At some point I was like, I'm not feeling joy. And also... I was feeling a little taken for granted. Like I felt like I had done all this stuff and wasn't given the kind of freedom. I'd become the, I've been global managing director, all kinds of stuff like that. And I was like, I'm good. I can do this. And, but at some point I had to like leave because I was like, what's me and what's idea? I couldn't separate it. Everyone was like, oh, don't think that it's B, it's you. It's actually idea. And I was like, I think it might be more than me than just being idea. I think it might be something in me. I found out it was me, what was me. And so it's like, I've got a lot of ideal in me. I love ideal still. Like I still talk to ideal people. I talk to ex ideal people, but it's like, this is me and I had to find me. And that's kind of the work I've been doing for the last last couple of years. Does that make sense?
1: It totally makes sense. It also makes me wonder what was there in an event or a set of events that really triggered making the final decision. I get what the lead up was. That totally makes
0: sense to me. I had a backlash moment. I was the manager director of the New York location. It was yeah. not a job I liked. I like didn't think that New York was gonna was doing great from a business perspective. And I had a little there was a rebellion against me. It was fine. Everybody was like, no worries, like you can do whatever you want. Like it's like nobody wanted me to go. But it left a really bad taste in my mouth because it's like it was two people in a group of like 50 that, that did it. And I'll tell you, I have a friend who's a white woman in a mostly in an organization that she really diversified. And I had to talk with her recently because she decided to step down as the CEO of the organization. Yeah. And I was like, you know, I did two things. I was like, this sounds a little bit more like bullying than it sounds like, which, was, which is kind of what I felt was happening to me. Then it feels like something else. And I said to her, I was like, try on what it feels like not to go to work. Like, so it's the same thing. It's like the same thing I said it earlier, like trying the mask of being gay or trying the mask. so I was like, trying the mask of like, you're not going to go to work today and you're not going to be bullied by this person. I sat down for my career navigation meeting with my CEO and my CFO, who I adore. They were like, don't leave, like stay for a year. And I was like, you know, I could stay for a year, but um, then I lose a year. And so I was like, maybe I will, maybe I won't. And so I was like, give, give me a month. And I took a month and then I quit. But I, I think what's interesting about that is that they really don't want me to go. And so, but what was interesting about that moment was just basically, oh, here's, it's an interesting little fact. So McKinsey has this interesting thing where at 50, they're like really encouraging you to leave. And by 55, if you're not out they're basically like, we're going to just pay you a year and we think you should just go out because their belief is, if you don't become something different by the time you're 55, you're never going to become something different. You'll always be a McKinsey person. And so I talked to a partner of McKinsey who basically w- told me that story. And this happened to be when I was 50, when I was going to Zenith, And I was like, wow, you know, it's like I leave now and I find myself, you know, I'm 52 now or I don't. And suddenly I find myself at 55 and I can't get out. And all my friends who are there now at 55 or more can't get out. Like they just can't. They can't imagine themselves in something else. So it was interesting, you know. Like I said, we go through transitions over and over and over again in our lives.
1: This concept of I'm gonna call it getting out while you can. Yeah. Or getting out become, before you become almost too vested or can't imagine life differently. I mean, we delved into what happened behind the scenes a little bit earlier, but I'll tell you that one of the things that we see again and again and again is by the time we start talking with somebody about a career transition, so many people have been like, yeah, I've actually been thinking about this for eight years. Yeah. And they haven't done anything about it. Initially, when they started thinking about it, they maybe took a little bit of action on it, but then they stayed and then they got into that point of no return. And then only when it got bad enough, to the point where they just couldn't do it anymore in some way or another. Then now, three years later, eight years later, sometimes, you know, we just talked to somebody the other day, 15 years later. And now it's like, hey, I, I can't ignore this anymore. Uh, but they were in that point of no return that you're talking about.
0: Yeah, and Scott, that's a really interesting thing because I sort of feel like, and, and by the way, this it also relates back to the book, which is interesting. Like I sort of feel like. That's a place where you really need to trust your gut. Like, as you know, one of the, the first chapter on commitment is basically like commit to the conversations that you're in, commit to the people you're in the conversations in, that you're in. And by the way, if it feels like it's unsafe and nobody's actually making a plan for the conversation, don't. Right. And so I, I'll give you another interesting, weird example. Like, I was up for a an amazingly interesting job. I got the job. I was literally the CEO. I flew out to the Bay Area. This was like, this was last year. I was like this small nonprofit that I was going to do something really transformative with. Like they were like unbelievably excited. Weirdly, I hadn't met anyone except for like a couple people on the board. So I was like, it was a very strange, sequestered little search. And I never graduated from grad school. I'm pretty transparent about that. Often when I lecture, I'll just be like, yeah, I I never graduated and I'm I'm fine with that. And IDEO knew that. And it's like, But the problem is that over the years, it gets slippery because like sometimes like New York Times would still say, oh, Fred Dust has a BA in architecture. And it's like hard as hell to get back to do it. So like weird stuff. So that came up like the day I was flying out there and they were like, this is not okay for us with our organization. And I was like, I get it. And they're like, but it's okay. Just come in, meet with the board and the staff and you're going to be so charming. They're going to let you go on this. And I was like, that's not a plan for a conversation. That's actually like you just relying on me being super charming. Unless you can guarantee me that there's a plan that you we're going to put in action. It's like, that's the plan. I'm like, that's not a plan. Then I'm not going to go in the room. And so I resigned. And because I could not agree to a conversation that was going to make me feel unsafe without there being some kind of rules in place to make that conversation happen.
1: Let me ask you about this idea Here. of No, I don't. Well, yes, it is weird, unfortunately. I would say, unfortunately, that more people don't look at it that way, because I believe that it creates far better interactions, conversations, relationships that result from those conversations. And this idea of building a conversation plan or creating a conversation plan is something that I wish I could say I always (laughs) did that. However, you know, I started finding a need for it way back when I was in HR leadership and started to recognize that as was, I don't know, you talked about people getting fired, you know, as it was having those types of really, what shall I call them, important interactions with people that changed how they look at their, their job or how they looked at the organization recognize that when I went in and just was charming, then it wasn't working out very well. Apparently I'm not as charming as I think I am. But but when I went in with a plan and when, even when it started, like I pulled out and just literally do three bullet points of what, that was my first plan way back when, but I recognize now that that is so powerful planning beforehand. It changes the course and dynamic and interaction. So tell us about, this idea behind the plan? And what can people do to plan for conversations?
0: Not every conversation needs a plan, maybe more need them than you think, you know, I would would say, but it's like, you know, gossip and chatting and all those things, like, don't overthink those things. Those are amazing. Just do it. That's fantastic. But there are conversations and there's sometimes conversations that you think are gossip and charming and whatever, that they're actually not. And they actually probably need a little bit more thinking about behind them. So I feel like the really simple construct that I put in the book, which I call it a conversation notebook, which I know it's just most, mostly because it's like, I think a lot of people don't like the word journaling, including me. And like, it's like, so very it's very overused now. too. Yeah, so like journaling or like diary didn't feel right. So it's like, it's just a notebook. What I've asked people to do is kind of keep track of the conversations that they felt like really worked and what it was about those conversations. What's their hunch about what made that conversation work? And what were the ones that didn't work? And what is their hunch? And that becomes a really great inspiration source. So my book is that for me, right? It's basically a a notebook of all the things that worked and didn't work. But it's like, I think it's more useful if you have your own. Please buy the book. You can definitely steal mine, but it's like, and you you should, but also build your own. What are the plans? What inspires you? What feels natural to your voice? You know, so it's like, we talk a lot about like this idea in the book of using your real voice. It's like, what's authentic to you? Like, don't be me, you know, or don't be you. Like, Scott, no, you be you. That, that's what you need to be doing, is like is kind of thinking about how, what, what's going to feel most right to you.
1: Something yeah. I wanted to ask you about, it has a little bit to do with the plan, but also something that you said earlier, which is not, not every conversation needs a plan. Not every conversation really requires that. Right. But you talk about this idea of picking the conversations that you want to commit to. Right. And... That's the first time I've heard of that idea in that particular way. And you talk about, you know, what types of conversations those even are to define that too. Yeah, so yeah. Tell me about, first of all, where the idea of picking the conversations that you want to commit to came from, and then what are those conversations that you should commit to or take the time to, you know, build a plan around or declare as important or whatever else it might be.
0: That's really interesting. I will tell you, I made it up. And what happened is, I was giving a lecture on the book because I often have to talk through things to kind of to work out what was right for the book. And so I gave a lecture. It was really there was six C's. There was not commitment, which is the number one, which is the first, which is the first C. And so I could tell that everybody thought the six C's were amazing, and they were like, like because you know, everybody brings out their phones and they're taking pictures yep. of screen. I'm and and like, I'm like, okay, this is working. And my lectures are highly visual and like whatever they're, and they're impromptu. But at the end, somebody asked a question like, well, what happens when I hate somebody or somebody hates me? Or there's a political divide that's so deep that we can't even do it. Or how do you imagine doing this in America today? And I was like, oh, right. Somebody should be asking me the question.
1: Right.
0: <laughs> and I was like, I don't have an answer. And I was like, I that's when I said, you need to commit. Like It's like you have to commit to the person and commit to that conversation and keep your values in check, like hold hold them back for a little bit. And what's interesting is that applies to almost everything. So it applies to politics, you know, so it's like, so I have conversations with People who are very different from me, your Trump or Biden, voting friends, whatever it is. And I'm really apolitical, though I'm I'm not a fan of whatever, but it's like I love us. Like, I mean, it's just like it's like, but but what I would say is that um I commit, you know, so it's like I had to talk to a very senior statesperson, a former potential president, and early on, like tell her people in the pandemic, no, she's gonna turn on her Zoom, she's gonna get on Zoom if she doesn't want to, right? And so I was here the other day, and there was like a guy bow hunting on our property. And he had this big Trump sticker on his truck. And he's out there with his son bow hunting. And I was like, Oh, I probably don't want to go talk to him. And I was like, Wait, a if I can go, if I can tell like a former potential president, to turn on their Zoom. I can talk to my hunter. And so, or like this hunter. And so I like went down. I was like, Hey, what's your name? What's your son's name? Like, it's like, what are you looking for? And like, it's like, I was like, maybe in the future, just ask if you're gonna hunt our property. We're totally cool with it. Maybe give us some venison. You know, it's like, and and we had a great conversation, and it was like, it was lovely and loving. I know his name, like he knows my name, he knows my husband's name, I know his son's name, and so that's like, I'm just going to commit. And that's that that takes some bravery. And but it was a good commitment. But what I I will say, and I think this actually really applies to a lot of people who you might be talking to, is that people who so often, like, I, I see this on boards a lot where people are like, I don't really believe in this organization. I don't really believe this organization can make it work. But it's important for me to stay on the board, because I'm like the naysayer that helps people kind of realize like what the truth is. And I'm sort of like, yeah, no, get off the board. And so I want to say that if you happen to be in a company or organization where you find yourself being the continuous naysayer, that might be telling you something. It might be telling you that it's not the right organization for you. You might think you're invaluable because of that, but it might be sort of like, and, and that's not... It's that's a different thing committing to the conversations. That, when that's exactly right. That's not,
1: it can right. feel like that's what that means, but it sounds like that's not what you mean when you say that.
0: That's right. And so what I would say is like, And this is like in the book, so commit to the conversation. And if you find that you can't commit, then get out of the conversation. It's going to make it a lot better for everybody else. And it'll make it better for you, too, because then you'll be in one less conversation. So I would say that if you're in an organization where you feel like you're finding yourself in a place where you're like continually grappling with being contrary, you may actually, in fact, be having an issue where you really don't feel committed to what that organization is doing, or you feel like it's not committed to you. Commit until it doesn't, but... If it feels unsafe, don't <laughs> like then then get out. But if you're a voice of difference, hesitate on getting out because we might need to you more. you know so if like you're, you find yourself being the only I don't know gay man a white, white gay man on an on organization's board, like maybe don't step off you know for the, for the moment. I just think we have to be really careful with it's essential. Last thing I'll say, Scott, is during the pandemic, if you can't commit. Then it's one less meeting for you. So awesome. Just like, don't go. It's like, it's like, if you're not essential to the conversation, don't go. Like, it's like, you need more time.
1: Next week, we have a special treat coming up for you here at Happen to Your Career. We have a two-part series on how to identify and find a cause you care about and make a real impact on the world. You might even say change the world. Well, Harriet Tubman was strong. And she was brave. And she had the courage to keep fighting and keep going on her dream to freedom. I think she had the courage to keep going on, even when everyone else turned back. All that and more right here on Happen to Your Career. We'll see you next week. Until then, I am out. Adios.